Let's turn together in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And we're going to read this morning from verse 12 to verse 29. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sins. In your sin, where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Let's pray, saints. Our glorious God and Father, it's such an honor to know you. It's such a privilege to know your Son and to understand heavenly things. And Father, we pray and ask you this morning that you would work among us by your Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and his deeds, and that you would make them known to us. You would give us understanding. You would help us to see what is meant by the things that we've read, that you would take the truth and you would put it into our hearts, Lord, and fill us with your light. And Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you that we are your workmanship. And we ask, Lord, that you would take this time, that you would set it aside, that it would be holy, and Lord, that we would hear you, and we would see, and we would rejoice in the truth. And Father, would you be glorified and honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Resistance to the Light. Resistance to the Light. And I'd like to discuss four points concerning this resistance taken from this utterly fascinating passage that we've just read. I don't feel the need to give a long introduction to justify my topic this morning, Resistance to the Light, 
I think that it's apt and it's relevant and that's obvious. And I'll, but I'll just give two reasons why this topic, resistance to the light, is relevant. First of all, the text clearly is dealing with resistance to the light. So the Pharisees are here and the Jews uh, more broadly are here resisting Jesus Christ, resisting his truth claims. And in this passage that we, that we read, there's a battle of words, isn't there? Jesus says something and they counter what he said. Jesus says something and they question what he said. They're challenging him. They're not willing to concede an inch to Jesus. Did you notice that? So we're plainly dealing with resistance, but even more importantly, we also get to see how Jesus handles resistance, how he handles the light being resisted. And then secondly, to justify the relevance of the topic of resistance to the light, I'd just like to ask you all, how many of us and how many of you are familiar firsthand with resistance to the light? right? Maybe before you were a Christian, you yourself were resisting the light, challenging the truth claims of Jesus. Or maybe your family members resist the light when you try to share with them the gospel and who Jesus is, and they resist you. They don't seem open, right? They challenge every word you say. It seems like they won't give you an inch. Or some dear friend, and it breaks your heart. Now, have you ever wondered why people resist the light? Have you ever thought, why? And has that ever troubled you? It really troubles me that people resist the light. And have you ever thought, how can it be when, there's, when the light is so beautiful, right? When you, when you, as a Christian, you say, the truth of Christ is so beautiful. Why would you resist some, this message that's so wonderful? And furthermore, how can you resist it when there's such good evidence and reasons and arguments to believe in it, right? Does that ever trouble you? Why don't my family members see? Why do so many reject? Well, if those are questions that you have, and if that troubles you, resistance to the light, then this passage is just for you. And we're going to see the answer to those questions here in this passage and in the Gospel of John. So since we have four points and a lot to say, and I beg for your patience this morning, let's begin without any further delay. My first point is this. Resistance to the light is ubiquitous. And by ubiquitous, I mean it's everywhere. It's widespread and it's commonplace. Resistance to the light is ubiquitous. Now in verse 12, Jesus has just made his second I am declaration. And he says this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we discussed this saying of Jesus last week in detail. Now, brothers and sisters, if this is true, that Jesus is the light of the world, and he came into the world to bring us light, and if we follow him, we'll not be in darkness, but we'll have the light of life, that's glorious good news, isn't it? If this is true, that's glorious good news. The world is perishing under the reign of ignorance and lies, of untruth, of unreality. People live in unreality. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they are. They don't know who God is. They don't know where they're going. They're stumbling around. They're going to fall into a ditch eventually. And what Jesus is saying is, I have come to bring truth. I have come into the world to bring the true knowledge about the way things are. The true knowledge about God, the true knowledge about people, the true knowledge about this world. I've come as light and truth. And if you follow my teaching, you'll have life. Which is a wonderful thing. Wonderful. Glorious good news. And yet, Amazingly, we find right here when Jesus makes this declaration, I am the light of the world. Right here we find resistance. Immediately. In fact, we find resistance 
to the light at every announcement that Jesus makes, every declaration that Jesus makes. It seems like every step Jesus takes, there's resistance. Just think about the life of Jesus briefly. When Jesus was born, wise men came to worship him. When Herod found out that the king of the Jews had been born, he resisted, didn't he? No, we don't want this. That didn't come as good news to the ruler in Jerusalem. And so he sought to kill Jesus and snuff out the Son of God, snuff out the Messiah. Amazing. He even asked, where's the Messiah to be born according to prophecy? Bethlehem. Okay, go kill all the children in Bethlehem so that the Messiah, the one that God would send, wouldn't come. Amazing, this resistance. And even after Herod died, when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus back from Egypt to Israel, Herod's son was still in power, and so they didn't go back to uh, where they were before, to Bethlehem. They went to Nazareth to hide from Herod's son. Still, the ruler in Israel resisted him. And do you remember when Jesus gave his first message in the synagogue in Nazareth? After his temptation in the desert, this is before his uh, public declaration of who he is in Jerusalem. This is just in the synagogue of Nazareth. And he, and he says, he quotes Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach what? Bad news? No, good news, right? Heal the, to heal the bro brokenhearted, to bind up their wounds, to open the eyes of the blind. And then he says, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. Now you'd think they'd say, wonderful, right? But instead, what do they do? They want to throw him off the cliff. They literally drag him out of the synagogue and want to kill him. Resistance. Ever after, in the ministry of Jesus, we see resistance to his teaching, even to his miracles. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. And yet they resist him because he doesn't do the miracles on the day that they think he should. See, they're not just finding fault with Jesus. They're wanting him to be at fault, aren't they? They're not saying, Jesus, you're our hero, but we have some problems with you. They're, we don't want you to be our hero, right? We don't want you to be the Messiah. And they try even to trap him and to catch him in their words, in his words, so that they can not only discredit him, but kill him. And at last they get their wish. Their resistance ultimately issues in the shameful and bloodthirsty trial and brutal crucifixion of Jesus. And yet the resistance to the light does not end there, does it? Because not long after his crucifixion, they proceed to resist the reports of his resurrection, even from the the dumb Roman guards that were there and saw the angel descend. They resist the preaching of the apostles every step of the way. And that resistance to the light in this world has not abated ever since. And still today, we find ourselves in a world that resists the truth of God, don't we? Now, do you think that'll ever change before Jesus returns? Do you think before Christ returns, the world will have a change of heart? And you know, we've resisted, we've resisted the truth for a long time now. Um, we might as well try something else. No, the world will not change. And I want to just tell, tell you again this morning that the world resists the light, and it, it has been that way from the beginning, brothers and sisters, and it will be that way to the very end, and we as Christians should not be surprised when we find the truth being resisted. The glorious good news of the truth by your family, by your friends, by society, by yourself even before you become a Christian. It shouldn't surprise you. In the light of that resistance, actually, Jesus tells us to rejoice. If you're resisted and persecuted and hated and slandered for the truth, rejoice, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 12, because they persecuted and resisted the prophets who were before you as well. So it just shows you're in the right camp when you're being resisted by the world. Now why? When the message is so good, when the message is truth and knowledge and life, and how, when there's so much reason and evidence to believe. Why is it resisted? 
Now turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, just a few chapters back. And we've already been told, we've already been told why. John, chapter 3. And let's start in verse 16, which is the most popular verse in the Bible. Wondrously good news. John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, we got some good news here, don't we? God loves this world and sent his son to save it, not condemn it. So why do people resist? Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why does the Bible say that people reject and resist the light? The answer is simply this, because they hate the light, and the flip side of that is they love the darkness. That is, they hate the truth, but they love the lie. That's the reason. So we see that the resistance to the gospel and the resistance to the truth isn't because the message of the gospel isn't beautiful and glorious, nor is it because people are ignorant, but because they hate the message. If it was just ignorance, then the light would come into the world and all would be well, right? If people were simply ignorant, and I'm not denying people are ignorant, but what I'm saying is they're willfully ignorant. If it was simply ignorance, then the truth comes. Hey, here's what reality is. Here's what the truth is. And here's the powerful reasons to believe it. And that would solve the problem. But we have a deeper problem. People hate it and they resist it because they prefer the darkness. Now, why do they prefer the darkness? Here's another question. Why prefer the darkness and not the light? What is the light saying that's so detestable to the world? And what is the darkness allowing so desirable? Right? Well, the Gospel of John also tells us. John chapter 5. Turn with me to John chapter 5. And we'll look at verse 39. And it's interesting because this is at the tail end of a conversation that Jesus had with the Jews in which he laid out powerful reasons to believe in him. He argued his case. But at the conclusion, he, he lets them know why they're not believing in him. It's not because the reasons aren't sufficient. It's something else. And look with me at verse 39 of chapter 5. Jesus says to them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are what? Unwilling, you don't want, you don't desire, it's not a good idea to you to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? Here it is. When you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. So here's, I think, the point. The reason why you hate the light and the reason why you prefer the darkness and the lies and other teachers besides Jesus and you don't prefer Jesus is because you don't love God and you don't 
seek the glory of God, you seek for your own glory. Because what the light reveals and what the truth reveals is what? The truth reveals is that you're inglorious, right? The truth reveals that you're not good. The truth reveals that you're unrighteous. The truth reveals that you deserve to go to hell. The truth reveals that God is not impressed with you. And you shouldn't be impressed with you either. The truth reveals that only God is good and only God is glorious. The truth crushes your pride, but it exalts God. The truth tells you that the only possible way that you can be saved is by grace. And you know what grace does? It removes all grounds for boasting, right? That's what it says in the, in the scriptures. So that no one can boast. Grace takes all the glory away from humans and it gives all the glory to God. That's what the truth says. That's what the light is revealing. And so people prefer darkness to light. I don't like that message. That's not thrilling to me that God gets all the glory. I deserve some glory. I don't want to relinquish the glory. And so what we see here is that the root problem with humanity, as the Bible teaches us in so many places, is enmity with God. Enmity with God. Wanting to put yourself in the place of God. Not being content to not be God. Not wanting God to be God. Enmity with God. We might ask this question. Are we ignorant of God because we hate God? Or do we hate God because we're ignorant of God? Well, I think that's, that question is actually too simplistic because I think both of those statements are true. We're ignorant of the truth and of God because we hate him. Because we hate the truth, we resist it, we reject it, we don't accept it, and so we leave ourselves in darkness and ignorance. But at the same time, because we're ignorant of God, we hate God. And so both of those are true. But a better question is, what's at the root? What's at the bottom? Is the root of the problem, is the bottom of the problem ignorance, or is the bottom of the problem hatred of God? And the Bible tells us here, we just saw it, that the problem at its root is hatred of God. And that is the meaning of the doctrine, so-called in the Christian church, of total depravity. Have you ever heard of that? The teaching or the doctrine of total depravity? Total depravity, Christians, we proclaim this, doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can possibly be, that you're just going around slaying people and, you know... <laughs> sleeping with whoever you come into contact with and all these things. But what total depravity simply means is at the root of the human being is enmity and hostility to God. That's what it means. That's the root problem with you. It's that selfish pride that wants the self to be God and get glory. So brothers and sisters, this is why people resist the light. Despite its beauty, despite its goodness and despite its evidence, this explains the ubiquitousness of the resistance to the light. I'd like to share a quote uh, by David, of David Brickner's. He's actually the director of Jews for Jesus. And he, was, and he gets asked a lot, why do the Jews not believe in Jesus, right? When the scriptures so plainly prophesy of him, Isaiah 53 lays out his crucifixion in plain sight. Daniel predicts the timing of his coming. You know, why in the light of all the prophecies do the Jews not believe in Jesus? What's wrong with them? Brickner wisely says, don't ask what's wrong with them, ask what's wrong with humanity, right? And here's what he says. The Bible teaches us that the most pressing reasons to resist the gospel are spiritual. This is true for Jews and Gentiles alike. And he says this very important thing. Humanity's sinful condition is what made the gospel necessary and it is also that condition that causes people to resist the gospel. True? 
Why do we need the gospel? Because we're enemies, evil people. And why do we resist it for the same reason? Sin is not merely outward. It's not merely our outward failure to resist one temptation or another. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity has been shaking its fist at the heavens, declaring to God, we will not have you rule over us. This is why we need a savior, brothers and sisters, because we are evil. And this is why we resist, because we're evil. My second point, resistance to the light is normally disguised. It's normally disguised. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, it doesn't normally manifest itself in people saying, I hate God, and I hate the truth, and I want glory, okay? When was the last time you heard someone say that? Okay, they're probably not going to say that. You're probably not going to say that. So we resist the light for that reason, but that's not what we say. The resistance masquerades itself as judiciousness, thoughtfulness, wisdom, even piety. For the sake of God, I resist the light. I resist, not, I wouldn't say it's the light, but I resist this message because I've, I'm doing honor to God. I resist this message because I'm being thoughtful. And it masquerades in this way. And people, unfortunately, fool themselves, brothers and sisters. They think that they're actually, uh, they don't think they're resisting the light because they hate God. They think they're resisting the light because they're doing good. So look at verse 13 of chapter 8. And this is exactly what we see. The Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So cautious, right? Circumspect, loyal to the requirements of the law. We must not be credulous now, right? We must prove. Otherwise, if we just believe what you said, Jesus, then, you know, we just believe any Tom, Dick, and Harry who said they were, the, they were the Messiah, and then, wow, the world would fall into chaos and we wouldn't be honoring God and his law. So in the name of honoring God, in the name of judiciousness, we don't believe you. So we see in verse 13, they masquerade. Now, of course, we should not be credulous, and we are to prove claims, test the spirits. It is required by the law that we do that. But brothers and sisters, when the evidence is already conclusive, people who don't want to believe can become pedantic and use sophistry as a way of resisting. What do I mean by that? The evidence is already conclusive. Jesus is making the claim to be the light of the world, and the evidence is in his favor. And here we see the Pharisees being pedantic. That means they're, ex they're, they're being scrupulous about minor details, right? They're missing the big picture. They're missing the, big, uh, the, the whole outline. They're not putting all the dots together because they don't want to see that Jesus is the Son of God, so they're just picking on the fact that he proclaimed that he's the light of the world. Hey, you just said that. That's a self-witness. That's not something to be believed. It's interesting because in chapter 5, they already had the conversation about witnesses. Jesus marshaled three decisive witnesses to show that he was who he said he was. John the Baptist, you'll remember, his own works, and the Father who spoke through the prophets of old in the scriptures. And he marshaled those three witnesses and says, you examine these witnesses and they all point to me and they prove that I am who I say I am. And yet they seem to have forgotten that conversation. They're just not thinking about that conversation anymore. They're willfully forgetting and they're being pedantic. How does Jesus reply to their stiff-necked accusation. Well, he responds in three ways we see. Number one, verse 14, he says to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. In essence, the first thing Jesus does in response to their sophistry is he simply says, a bare attestation, 
I am who I say I am. I know what I'm saying is true. They're asking for proof. Well, technically, this, this saying is not proof. This wouldn't satisfy them, but he's just affirming, yes, I am saying the truth. I know my origin. I know my destination. I get a sense of exasperation here in verse 14. I don't know if you do. Have you ever been accused of lying when you're not really lying? You know how that feels? And you know how it feels when you can't convince someone that you're telling the truth and they think that you're lying, but you know you're telling the truth? You know that feeling? I get a sense that Jesus is having this feeling. And he's just saying, I, you guys are stubborn. I can't convince you. I know that what I'm saying is true. That's not all he says, however. He says more than that. Secondly, in verse 15, Jesus tells them that their perspective and the lens by which they're seeing things is wrong. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. So the problem is actually with you. You know, the reason why you're not believing in me is because you are not seeing things rightly. Your perspective is wrong. Now, by now, I hope that most of you know that when the Bible is talking about flesh, it's usually contrasting flesh with spirit. And by that contrast, what it's, what it's setting against uh, spirit is creatureliness or what is human and earthly as opposed to what is supernatural and divine. When a person judges by the flesh, what they're doing is they're judging by what is humanly possible. They're judging by the capabilities of the creature, not by the capabilities of God. The NIV translate this, you judge by a human standard. And that's why you don't know who I am. That's why you're rejecting me, because you're only seeing things from a human standard. Or in other words, you hear me talk about righteousness as perfection. And you know that that standard is humanly impossible. I'm here saying what it really takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear that as can't be right? That's not possible for humans. And instead of admitting failure, you just judge me to be wrong. So I'm preaching the truth. I'm preaching the truth of righteousness according to God, and you're judging according to the flesh and saying no. And you think God is like you. You think his wisdom is your wisdom. His perspective is your perspective. Jesus is preaching God's true perspective, and they're seeing the world through their own human, natural perspective. And there's a problem. This is how non-Christians judge things today, isn't it? They judge according to the flesh. Non-Christians see the world and they see religion and they see God from a human standard and from a human perspective. And they think God is just like themselves, thinks just like them. The standard's got to be what's humanly reasonable to them, right? They don't see what Isaiah saw. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up above the earth, he realized that every single person is, is in trouble, right? If that's God, if he's that pure, if he requires that perfection, we're all gone. We're all goners, right? And Isaiah said not... Well, I'm glad God's like me. I need to try a little bit harder. He said, woe is me, I'm undone. And what, the only thing that helped Isaiah was the coal from the altar that symbolized the death of Christ that forgave him of his sins and enabled him to stand before the burning presence of God. The world needs to see things from a different perspective, doesn't it? They need to see things from God's perspective. The commentators Milligan and Moulton said, but for this the divine witness in Christ would have reached their hearts if they had just seen from God's perspective, if they had just judged righteously. Why did they not do that? Because of their enmity against God. Jesus says, I'm not judging anyone in verse 15. Now what does he mean, I am not judging anyone? We know Jesus is the judge. Lots of verses even in the Gospel of John says he's the judge. 
Now, typically, there's been three answers given to what Jesus is, what he means here. Number one, many think what he means is, I'm not judging anyone right now, right? Currently, I'm not judging anyone. I didn't come into the world to judge, but to save. I will judge later. A second answer that's given to this is, I am not judging in the way that you guys are judging. So they, there's an implication here that you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging according to the flesh. That's the implication. And thirdly, another answer to what this means is, when Jesus says, I judge no one, he means I, emphasis on I, me. I alone am not judging people. But look at verse 16, the next verse. But even if I do judge, so there's a contrast. He's saying, I'm not judging. But even if I do judge, I am not alone in it but I and the Father who sent me. So what Jesus seems to be saying is, I myself, all by myself, from my own perspective, from my own lens, am not judging anyone. If I judge, it's always the Father with me, and I'm judging according to God. Now I think this third answer is correct. That Jesus is just saying, you judge according to the flesh. I myself don't judge I judge according to God. I just pass on his judgment, right? I think that's correct. Although all of these answers are true, Jesus is not here now to judge. He's here to save. He certainly doesn't judge in the way they do. His judgment is according to God, amen? That's what makes Jesus so amazingly different, isn't it? That he speaks the words of God. And the third thing Jesus responds to them and, their stiff neck, and to their stiff-necked accusation is that he reminds them in verse 17 and 18 that he has already satisfied the reasonable demand for witnesses. He says in verse 17 and 18 that, yes, you're right, you do need to have proof, and I've already given that to you. The Father testifies of me. And he's just recalling his teaching in chapter 5 to these forgetful people. In verse 19, we see their resistance again. Where is your father? You say that the father testifies and gives witness to you. Well, we haven't seen that. And by saying this, they just simply prove that they don't know the father, right? They just prove Jesus' point. They're clueless to what Jesus is saying. They don't want to know what Jesus is saying. And so once again, we see that resistance to the light disguises itself as wisdom, caution, and piety. Where's your father? Just bring him forth and then we'll hear. Like you really want to know. Thirdly, my third point this morning, resistance to the light is eternally dangerous. Verse 21 through 24. What we see here is that resistance to the light is no trivial superficial matter or offense. When the light of God comes to this world and reveals the truth about God, the truth about his righteous standards, the truth that we've all fallen short of that righteous standards, the truth that we can only be saved by grace, when a person rejects that light, they're not simply rejecting the truth, they're rejecting the salvation of their soul. Jesus tells them, I will soon be leaving. He's referring to his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. You are going to keep seeking for the Messiah and you will not find the Messiah because I am the Messiah. And the result of your disbelief in me, he says here in sobering words, is that you will die in your sin. If you don't believe, you'll die in your sin. Friends, that's the worst thing that can happen to somebody. To die in your sin, that is in a state and condition of not being righteous before God. And the remarkable thing is, 
This is the worst thing that can happen to a person. And yet, we could die at any time. True? Could you die at any time? Could you die right now? Could you die on the way home? Could you die tonight in your sleep? Could you die tomorrow? There's a lot of chances for you to die, right? There's a lot of opportunity. It could literally happen at any time. And what that means is that for a person to not be a believer in Jesus, that means they stand literally in jeopardy every moment. That's not just me saying that. That's, that's Jesus saying that, right? That's not Christian tradition. The Bible does not teach we have a second chance after death. The Bible teaches that it's appointed by God once for man to die, and after that, their judge. The concept of a second chance after death, very popular in our state here, arises because of the belief that people are not fully responsible here. When a person believes that we have a second chance after death, it's always because they don't believe we're fully responsible here. This life is not enough to condemn somebody. People deserve a fair shot and a second chance. To prove what, though, I may ask? A second chance to prove that you love God? A second chance to prove that you love the truth? According to the Bible, that is incorrect. And that in this life, we prove, and we already read it in John 3, this is the condemnation. Light has come, and men love darkness rather than light. And God knows exactly who we are. He doesn't need a second opinion. Jesus says where he is going, they can't come. He's going to God. They deliberately misrepresent him. They have bitter mockery against him here. They say, is he going to commit suicide? Which was a great sin in the Jewish mind. So they're slandering him. They're not even trying to understand what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I'm going to God and you won't be able to come. Now it's interesting in chapter 13, he says the very same thing to his disciples. He says, I am leaving and, I'm, and where I am going, you cannot come. Although he changes the statement by saying, now you cannot come. You will come later, right? So he doesn't make an absolute statement, you can't follow me or come. He says, you will come later. But it's interesting that even there they misunderstand him too. They say, we don't know where you're going. Because in both the minds of the Pharisees and the disciples, the Messiah doesn't leave, right? We believe you're the Messiah, Jesus, but the Messiah comes and stays and makes things right. Why are you talking about leaving? So they didn't understand the, the nature of the, the coming of Christ, that he would come in two comings, first to die and to open the door of salvation, and then to go back to the Father until the time when he would come again to stay for good. He needed to come and die for us. And he would go to God, and whoever believes in him would later also come to God. And this is the meaning of John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why do people go to hell and perish in their sins, according to Jesus here in this passage, it's not because they're sinful in their behavior. Why, do, why does a person die in their sins? Not because they're sinful in their behavior, but because they don't believe in him, verse 24. We're all sinners. But if you believe in him, you will not die in your sins. That's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you look at your life. I'm a sinner. Man, I feel like if I die now, I'm, I'm going to die in my sins, right? I'm not sufficiently clean. I'm, I haven't straightened everything out. That's how the world thinks. What Jesus is saying is, yes, that's the point, and that's why you need me. Amen. 
The Pharisees were offended by him, saying that they were sinners. What do you mean we're going to die in our sins like everybody else? No. They were profoundly ignorant, not only of Jesus, but of themselves. And Jesus says in verse 26, I have much to speak concerning you and to judge concerning you. The light comes into the world not only to reveal the truth about God and his righteousness, but the truth about us as well, brothers and sisters. This world is perishing in their sins, and we need Christ as our Savior. So resistance to the light is eternally dangerous. And my last point this morning is this. From the text, resistance to the light is in the end impossible. Now we see in verse 27 that they're totally clueless as to what Jesus has been talking about. Their hatred of God has darkened their minds and it's made them ignorant. And they're able to think that they're ignoring the truth. They're able to think they're, reje- or, sorry, they're rejecting the truth because they're pious, because they're cautious, because they're judicious. But what Jesus says in verse 28 and 29 is that there's coming a time when all the masquerading masks will be taken off. And people's hostility to Jesus can't be hidden anymore. Now, verse 28 is a hard verse to interpret because what it seems to be saying is that his crucifiers will know who he is through the act of crucifying him. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you, who lifted up the Son of Man, will know that I am and that I don't do anything on my own. I'm not here as a maverick or a renegade. God truly has sent me, and I'm truly speaking the truth in the words of God. So it's a hard verse to interpret. What do you mean the crucifiers of Christ will know who he is after they have crucified him? Did all the crucifiers of Jesus believe? Now, the verse is variously interpreted, but here's what I think Jesus means. When you have finally killed me and lifted me up on a cross, you will be doing far more than simply lifting me up to my death. You will be lifting me up to my glory. You will have lifted me up to the Father, for through my death, I shall have finished the work that he gave me to do and he will exalt me and give me a name above every name so that at my name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By crucifying me, I will enter my glory and when you see that glory, you will know that I am who I said I am and that the Father was with me all this time, and that I did only what pleased him. I think this is what Jesus is saying. You want to get rid of me, but when you lift me up on the cross, you're lifting me up to a place where you'll never get rid of me, and where my glory will shine, and where you will be convinced of your sinfulness in crucifying me. In other words, It's not the crucifixion of Jesus per se that he's talking about here that will convince them, but the repercussion of it. What will happen as a result of his crucifixion? That will, what will happen, the repercussion of his crucifixion will at last convince his now pedantic opponents that he is the son of God. Now this does not mean that they will believe in him, though some will. But what it does mean is that after his crucifixion, there will be no more pretenses on their part, no more hiding places. They won't be under the delusion that they're being pious or they're being judicious and rejecting Jesus. They will be resisting the light openly and it will be evident even to them. Because what happens when Jesus dies? He rises from the dead. He ascends to the Father and he'll come again. I think of the Exodus story. This makes me think of the Exodus story. And think about Pharaoh. 
and God does miracles to convince Pharaoh who he is and that he's powerful and that he needs to let the people go, right? And what does Pharaoh initially think as the miracles are happening? Well, he thinks he's being judicious, right? He thinks he's being wise. Oh, you know, my magicians can turn their staffs into snakes too. Oh, you turn the water into blood. My magicians can turn water into blood too. Oh, you know, you send forth frogs. Well, my magicians can send forth. See, your God's not that powerful. Your God doesn't, shouldn't be listened to. I would be a fool to listen to him and to deny my gods. And so at first, his, re, his resistance to Moses seems credulous, seems judicious. But what happens as the story goes on? Even his magicians say, this is the finger of God. <laughs> we can't copy this. We've never seen anything like this as God pours forth judgment after judgment after judgment that completely confounds the gods of Egypt and the magicians of Egypt. But Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and eventually there comes proofs undeniable, brothers and sisters. Just think about it for a moment. And God after killing the, all the firstborns in Egypt, brings the people of Israel out of Egypt to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh proceeds with his armies to chase the Israelites to kill them. And when he gets to the Red Sea, God opens the Red Sea. He opens it. And the Israelites are walking through the Red Sea, and there's a, there's a wall of fire between the Israelites and the Egyptians, and when that's removed, they see, my goodness, the Israelites have gone through the Red Sea. This is an incredible miracle here. Clearly, God is among them. And what does he do? Does he turn back at that point? Okay, you know, I'm done. I've been beaten, game over. I confess, I lose. God gets the glory. I'm an idiot. No. Run into the water and kill them. If there was ever an example of total depravity, that was the example. We're not dealing with ignorance. We're dealing with hatred of God. When I read verse 28, that's the sense that I get. Once you've killed me, and once I've risen... You'll be like Pharaoh charging into the water to try to resist the light. And your sin will be seen as open and known as open rebellion. Such open resistance to the light will also be seen at the time of the second coming. We read in the Bible that when Jesus Christ returns and appears in the sky, the nations of the world have gathered their armies to resist him. Isn't that amazing? Bring forth the tanks and the missiles and stop that man on the white horse. But what, we'll see there, what we see there as well is that resistance to the light ultimately proves futile. And brothers and sisters, there's coming a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here are my, five, my four points this morning. Resistance to the light is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's commonplace. It's normally disguised. It's eternally dangerous. And in the end, it will be revealed for what it is, open hatred of God, and it will in the end be impossible. You can't resist it anymore. That's a pretty bleak picture of humanity. But brothers and sisters, I want to just say this in closing. That the more you see the wickedness of human beings, the greater you will see the love and the grace of God that he's shown towards human beings. If you want to say, I don't think human beings are really that bad, Eli, well then, you might as well just say, I don't think the love of God is really that great, Eli, right? I don't think the grace of God is really that amazing, Eli, because the wonder of this story is, is that although human beings hate God, hate him, and resist the truth, and are seeking their own glory, it is to these very same human beings, or it is these very same human beings, 
that God loves and that he sent his son into the world to save. That's the gospel message, isn't it? And the mockery of the Jews in verse 22, is he going to kill himself? They're mocking him. But there's a, there's a funny irony in that statement because in a sense, yes, he's going to kill himself, isn't he? But not for the reason that they think. It's not going to be a suicide. But indeed, Jesus came into the world to die and to lay down his life for his mockers and for those who hate him and for those who would usurp his rule and for those who would usurp his father's glory. He came into the world to die for them at their hands, but he is the one who no one takes his life from him. He gives himself into their hands. And he dies for, for us. Isn't that incredible? I hope that this morning you take away from this and you see how truly wicked you are and how truly amazing it is that God has sent his son into the world to die for you. So just listen to the light, which is simply listen to reality. The reality is you don't deserve any glory. I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll know that. You don't, know, you don't deserve a blue ribbon in heaven. You don't deserve the praise. You and I are totally unrighteous. We are totally disgraceful, if you're honest with yourself. Totally inglorious. Totally worthy of death. And we can never be righteous in the flesh by obedience to the law by our own capabilities. The light tells us this. But the light tells us also, God demonstrates his own love by coming into the world and takes upon himself all of our evil and he pays the penalty that we deserve. And he did it. Notice verse 29. Here's an amazing thought. Because it pleased him to do it. Jesus only did that which pleased the Father. And going to the cross was one of those things. It pleased God to save you, my friends. Isn't that amazing? And when you die trusting in Jesus, it pleases him to welcome you in. It's not that he's like, ah, why did I give the gospel? I don't want that person to come in. You know, why did I usher that promise? I don't like him anymore. It pleases him to save you. And the light tells us, that we are saved through faith alone. Not by any works that we do, but just by believing in Jesus. We are forgiven, justified. We will not die in our sins, and we have eternal life just by believing. Isn't that amazing? So this is the gospel, isn't it? Drawn from this passage. As, just like we find it in Ephesians and Romans, human beings are wicked, evil, haters of God, enemies of God. But in his great love, he's come to save. So let us proclaim this light as Christians and not be afraid of the resistance, not be surprised by it. Let's proclaim openly this light. Let us tell people the truth. And if you're not a Christian, stop opening, openly rebelling against the Son of God. Simply believe and you will have eternal life. And this is the message we preach, and we will continue to do so until he comes. Please stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, your ways are above our ways and your thoughts are above our thoughts. Father, I pray that, I pray for anyone here who's still in darkness, who hasn't understood these things, who resists these things. Oh Lord, I pray that this day would be the day of salvation, the day of entering that light, confessing their sin, and trusting in Christ. I especially pray for us Christians, Lord, your people, your holy ones. Lord, I pray you'd encourage us afresh this day with your great love for us. 
in your free salvation. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and not discouraged as we shine as lights in this world. And please, Lord, let us trust in your power and your ability to change hearts. And Lord, let us boldly proclaim this truth with joy. And Father, we just thank you for the awesome privilege of being your children. Thank you for your son, who is so precious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.